Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Right now, a lot of women socially are very pissed off. So they're coming out and they're very sort of directly expressing how they feel. And there's this real sense of a lot of men retreating and feeling like they always need to maybe please women. Um, now, I can only really speak to, speak for myself and the women that I'm close to, but I feel like I'm not really interested in a man pleasing me. I'm more interested in him engaging. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in, even if a guy disagrees with something I've said, I'm really upset with him staying present and trying to work through something with me. Um, and I think that's something that men really misunderstand. I think and this is a bit of a cliche we have, but there's some truth to this, that men feel like they have to fix things. This cliche that a woman will talk, a woman will talk about a problem and a guy is like, what do you want me to do about it? Um, and it's a cliche, but I think yeah. there's a real truth to that. And yeah, I, in my own experience, I, I personally have had very bad experiences with men who are people pleasers and who want to please women because that's actually, that isn't actually connection. Um, that kind of feels like quite an, mm -hmm objectified relationship you know like you are being nice to me because you want something or you are trying to fix something because you want me to get off your back and not talk about something anymore you know um, and I think the interest is more in connection and even having a fight I mean I'm a big fan of having a fight and especially again speaking for myself but I think this might be a bit more general than just me um I, I really lose respect for a guy if he can't have an argument with me because I feel like that's a way of A, people pleasing, B, not being honest, and C, kind of treating me like I'm some fragile thing and that, oh, we can't really go there. Whereas if we get engaged and we argue, but still the guy is present, he wants to have the conversation, we might disagree, but he's up for grappling with it with me. That means a thousand times more. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Nas, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you are one of a long line of uh, amazing people that has been referred to the Unmistakable Creative by our mutual friend and former Unmistakable Creative guest, Sarah Peck, who uh, everybody she sends us is amazing. So I expect nothing less from you. So no pressure at all. Uh, But before we get into what you do, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? What did my parents do? So my parents are Iranian and then they moved to the UK midway through adulthood. So in Iran, my dad worked in government and my mother, she was a, she worked in a lab. So she worked in a university um, as a scientist. Um, and here they worked in teaching, surveying. They ran a business for a while. Um, but actually they met by they um, met because my father was setting up a beef cooperative and he, he had gone to agriculture school with my 
mother. And when he was setting up this cooperative, um, he wanted to sort of feed the nation and sort of do that kind of thing. And one of his professors was like, oh, yeah, speak to so-and-so who was in your class. She's been talking about cows as well. So that's basically how they got back in touch, by running like a beef co-op together. What impact did that end up having on you? What impact did it have? Um, I am going to be really honest. It makes me very snobby about sort of snobby food stuff. Like, you know, people who are really snobby about food or like chefs who are like doing really fancy things. I find that quite annoying. And I know it's because I'm like, my parents met because they wanted to like feed the nation and stuff. So I'm quite populist in some of my tastes um, and stuff. That That one is very obvious to me. Um, what about career-wise um, and choices that you've made with your life? In terms of what my parents did? Yeah. What impact did that have on you? I think it's more their sort of personalities that have impacted me rather than their actual careers. Um, they've always been very sort of thoughtful, very much into discussion, into thinking about things, into challenging things. Um, even when I was like a little kid, I was one of these annoying kids who was always get into annoying discussions with adults and stuff. Um, so that was always very much encouraged and it was expected that I should have an opinion and that I should get into conversations and be a bit argumentative. So I think that has had a huge impact because that's basically what being a journalist <laughs> is about. <laughs> so yeah. like, in that way, it's not a surprise at all. Um, yeah. So a couple of questions from that. Uh, one, with your parents having moved from Iran to the UK, uh, how do they integrate the two cultures into the way that you're raised? Uh, because I, I wonder this as somebody who grew up the son of Indian immigra- immigrants in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't really know, to be honest. Because also, I wonder when you have parents who are immigrants and they've moved to a new country, I think maybe so much of it is just trying to deal with everyday life. I, I don't think though. I'm trying to think. I don't I don't know if there was like a plan or something. I feel like I feel like with a lot of a lot of children like me, um sort of home life and public life are, are quite different in terms of who you are, expectations from you. Um yeah. Does it, did, did you feel that way as well that like who you were at home was a little bit different to who you are in public. I mean, I know everyone's like that to an extent, but even more so because like you've got a very different cultural expectation and context going on in public and in the home. Yeah, I I think so. I think there were were absolutely uh, parts of of being Indian that were definitely not something that I wanted to take to school. I mean, so much so that I didn't invite my parents to open house one year because I was embarrassed by their accents. Mm. Uh, but I guess, you know, for me, like, I wonder, one is, is what parts of culture have you retained for, uh, growing up in the UK and what parts of, uh, you know, growing up in the UK have become sort of predominant in, in the yeah. way you view your culture? So what's interesting is two things. First of all, being in London, London's very different from Britain. So it's kind of got its own very kind of multi-ethnic melting pot culture. Um, I actually, it's your question is interesting because I feel it's more, um, and this is something I hear from a lot of people, is that I think a lot of people who grew up like me never really properly feel British. So it's, um, it's, it's less that I have parts of Iranian identity that I identify with, more that there are parts of non-British identity that will be very mutual with um, 
you know, someone whose parents were Nigerian who grew up here or parents were Chinese and they grew up here. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's quite an interesting thing. In fact, earlier today, I was interviewing a young man who he's Nigerian. Um, his parents are Nigerian. He grew up here and he was saying things about like expectations at home. And I was like, that sounds exactly like a lot of Iranian kids I know. So I feel like there's the sort of um, whether you were British or not. So what parts of both have I retained? I mean, I think anyone who comes from sort of Middle East or like the Asian continent, there's that whole thing about family being really important. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a huge part of your life. Um, so I think that I've retained there. Um, I think that's, that's a big one. It's interesting thinking of your question because I'm actually thinking slightly more in terms of my family. So my mother's side, um, she comes from a very literary family. Her, her grandfather was a very well-known poet back in Iran. And so I've always been around a lot of literature. So, um, She's always been very involved. One of my cousins is a poet. Um, my uncle back in Iran hosts a poetry show on TV. Um, and ever since I was young, I was always really into like literature and um, journalism as well, you know, kind of like long form writing and stuff like that. So I know that that's influenced me a lot and also kind of being very aware of language. Um, but it's interesting because um, it's always, for me, it's always been within the English language, but still that sort of love of literature of language of how we speak, how we communicate. I think that's definitely come from my mother's side of the family. But also what's interesting is because um, when, so in Iran, poetry is the, is the big thing. And um, so it's not really a culture where you have novels. That's, that's a much more modern thing, but you know, you've got hundreds of years of sort of poetry and also very sort of spiritual poetry. Um, so I, th- I think that side has been very influential in terms of not just the interest in literature, but also that kind of spiritual connection and um, that sort of mysticism. I know this sounds a bit grandiose right now, but also the other interesting thing is with a lot of Iranian poetry, um, it's very rhythmic. So I used to write and perform poetry in my early 20s. And whenever I'd perform, people would always say, oh, it's very sort of rhythmic and stuff. Um, They'd always comment on that, which is interesting because when you grow up listening to Iranian poetry, that's exactly the main the main thing I remember is kind of the rhythms and the beats and the melodies and stuff. Um, so I think that has definitely come through. Um, hmm, I'm trying to think. Yeah. About. Hmm. So I wonder what kind of a uh, career advice your parents gave you when you're growing up, uh, mainly because I think when you come from the Indian culture or yeah. many Asian cultures, the sort of standard career advice is doctor, <laughs> lawyer, engineer, everything else is really not worth your time. So I, I, I think that that was the other thing that was shocking to me is that, wow, you're, you're you know, of Iranian descent yeah. and you're a journalist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I wonder, did your parents encourage you know, traditional career paths where they're like, no, go do this thing that is somewhat nebulous and doesn't have a sort of laid out plan for how you get to it. Yeah, no, what you're saying is funny because that's, again, that's like every immigrant family, right? It's like doctor, lawyer, engineer or nothing, right? Yeah. Um, So with me, um, luckily, my dad like really doesn't like doctors and he's like, medicine, (laughs) why would you do that? Like, why do you want to study all this time and like end up having to, because also like the day-to-day of medicine is quite messy. So he's like, why do you want to have to do that? So luckily I didn't have those pressures. Um, No, I think I've been quite lucky in those regards um, that I didn't have those pressures. I mean, I don't know if it's because, I don't know if my parents had certain 
expectations and didn't tell me because they didn't want to pressure me or anything. But in terms of career, they, they, they haven't been very pressury. What is interesting, though, is that I was very, very studious as a kid. Um, and again, a lot of immigrant families, there's a lot of pressure to be academically, you know, really excellent and to do very well and stuff. Um, and I once, a few years ago, I asked my mother about this, about how, um, I mean, the, you know, they were very encouraging and did want me to do well, but I don't feel they pushed me that much. And she, my mom was like, that's because you were like such a nerd naturally that I didn't actually need to do that. So I think maybe in that respect, so I was quite lucky too. Yeah. But did you have pressure to like, you know, be an engineer or whatever. Well, everybody in my family uh, will <laughs> deny it to the day that I die. Uh, but I, I think it was implicit. Mm. It wasn't necessarily always explicit, but it was pretty clear that, by the way, if you want a good life, become a doctor. And yeah. my sister did. Yeah. Uh, but my sister did through her, because of her own genuine interest. I think that that message got drilled into me so much that I realized the last thing on earth I wanted to do was become a doctor. There was a, a moment once when my mom said, I won't pay for your college if you don't become a doctor. Oh. Uh, even though she'll deny that to the day she dies. What did you, uh, what did you study? Uh, well, <laughs> I got an economics degree uh -huh. formally, but I really didn't do anything at Berkeley, to be honest. Uh, when I look back at it now, I, I feel that it was a very wasted experience, uh, mainly because of the way I chose to approach my education, which is, is why I'm, I'm, you know, uh, a big advocate for indulging one's curiosity, because I think that when you are schooled in the environment that I was schooled in, uh, despite the fact that it is known to have a reputation for rebelliousness and um, liberalism, the irony is that I've never been in an environment that breeds so much conformity. Okay, so this is interesting because I studied economics as well. And and again, I think maybe that is one of the reasons I didn't get these conversations because I don't want to sound snobby, but economics is one of those sort of hardcore subjects where it's like, yeah, you do economics, you're always going to get a good job. It's I, I, I hate to sound judgy because I really don't think this, but a lot of people think like humanities are wishy-washy or whatever, especially if you're from cultures where it's like be a doctor or whatever. So I think studying economics stops that. But it's interesting what you're saying about your experience at Berkeley. I went to the LSE, which also has a reputation for being sort of really out there and stuff. Um, and it was just like everyone wanted to be bankers. And it was a, it was a really like shocking and depressing experience for me because I'd gone in being one of these super nerdy kids. And I was like, I want to do good in the world using economics, which sounds weird saying it out loud now. But, you know being in that environment where everyone was just so focused on making a lot of money and that, yeah, it, it was very, it was, it was really soul sapping. Um, and I, mm. yeah, I, I do, I don't know if your experience was similar or not, but I think, yeah, yeah. I, I would say so. I think, like I said, I mean, for me, the things that were really soul sucking were the fact that an environment that is sold to us as a place that's liberal and rebellious is an environment that breeds a whole hell of a lot of conformity. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's isolated to Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I finished reading this book called The Miseducation of the American Elite. Is this uh, Alan Dershowitz? Uh, Bill Dershowitz. Sorry. Or not, not, Alan is the, the guy who's sorry, doing something sorry. related. Bill Dershowitz. No, no. He's the, the former Yale guy because I've read a lot of his stuff. I don't yeah. know. Probably because yeah, Alan's on the news. Gonna be, I got them. Yeah, he's going to be a guest on the show soon. Uh, awesome. So, uh, and he wrote how Excellent Cheek, right? Is this the guy? Yeah, yes, he's he did. Great. That's yeah, yeah. That is actually, I think the the subtitle of the book is is the miseducation of the American elite. The title is excellent. But this is interesting because uh, um, I I often wonder if it's to do with this whole um, well, well, this is way bigger problem in the US, right? But education being expensive, so it's kind of like I, I 
I can't blame people, you know, young people if they go and thinking, I need to approach this like in a serious, how is this going to get me a job way? So even though I don't like that mentality, I kind of don't blame people for, you know, not using university as a place to intellectually explore, but to like get great grades and um, just get a great job. So I think I think it's more the system needs to foster an environment where students can have that curiosity. Yeah, I don't know. So how do you get from the London School of Economics to becoming a journalist? Um, so I spent way too much time doing the student paper when I was at university. Um, so originally, very grandiose, but I was like, yeah, I want to like change the world with economics and I'm going to go work at the World Bank or something and make a big difference and stuff. And then, um, yeah, I, I just wasn't really into economics and it was really mathsy. And I, I, I really clearly remember being in the session that some World Bank people were running and they were, you know, giving advice about what you need to do to work there. And they were like, you need minimum a PhD in macroeconomics. And then I think half of us were like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> so then it was like, that's not happening. And then I was spending a lot of time um, doing the student paper and looking back now, it's totally natural because as a kid, I was always reading papers. I was always, I remember our, our school library when I was at secondary school, I'd always rush and get Time magazine as soon as it came out every week. Um, and I was always kind of interested in current affairs, in news and what was going on in the world. And then I mentioned earlier that I also like was interested in sort of, sort of literature, language, how we communicate. So looking back, it sort of, it kind of naturally made sense. Um, I think a lot of what we do is kind of what naturally suits us. So, you know, this whole thing of, and there's nothing wrong with this, but when people sit down and they try to map out what they want their life to be like, or what they want their relationships to be like and stuff. And I'm like, but so much is a lot more intuitive. I mean, maybe that works for some people and that's cool too. But um, yeah, I think this interest in current affairs news, which I've always had, and also sort of when when I said about the whole like, changing the world through economics. Again, a lot of that was born out of being someone who was always reading the news, who was always following what was going on in the world. So even that to an extent made sense. Um, so that's why when I realized there's no way I'm doing a macroeconomics PhD and stuff, and I'm spending way too much time at the new, at the student paper, then that kind of, um, that transition was kind of quite seamless. Yeah, it made sense. As a journalist, uh, but how do you think about truth in such a divisive media environment? Uh, I think it, it's probably not as prevalent where you're at, but in the United States, it's very clear what has happened is a divisive media environment has basically shaped people's perceptions of reality. And I've never gotten to ask a, a, a journalist for a major media outlet what they think about this. And then, you know, what is the danger of where this is leading us? What's the danger? The thing is, I hate that I'm actually going to say this, but I think a lot of the... I'm making some assumptions now about your question. I think a lot of the outlets that people are pissed off at, there is good reason to be pissed off at them. So uh, let, let me see if my assumptions are right. I'm thinking you in the US, you're thinking of sort of Trump and his supporters, there being a lot of hatred towards the media, um, attacking places like the New York Times for being fake news, a lot of those kind of, I guess, more liberal established, yeah. you know, the liberal media establishment, seeing them as being sort of biased. Is that what you're kind of referring to? Well, that, that's one place, but I think that, it, you know, you can, you can look at the other side as well too, mm -hmm. right? Because there are people who watch Fox yeah. News who, um, you know, like that's yeah. their, their jam. 
I have no uh, opinion or judgment on what people choose to consume. What I'm more interested in is is the how this shapes our version of reality. Yeah, I'll be honest. The second part I can't talk to because I haven't really followed those outlets like your Fox News and stuff. They're, they're things that I'll see just snippets of. Um, on the other side, um, as someone who is part of the sort of liberal media establishment, I guess, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, put it this way, how do I answer this in a, I mean, I I do think my profession is very elitist um, and that does affect how we report things, to be honest. Um, So sometimes when there is anger from the general populace towards people at the outlets I work at or similar, um, I I think there's good reason for that because I think a lot of us come from very elite backgrounds um, and maybe report on what's going on in the world in a very, um, you know, we're in bubbles and stuff. Um, so I, I do think some of that outrage is le- legitimate, to be honest. Um, and the way the media industry works, um, first of all, it's very badly paid and you need a lot of connections and a lot of contacts to come in. So, you know, it does mean that you have a very specific and elite group of people running these newsrooms. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that they're not good at their jobs or that they can't be unbiased or they can't be people who have great critical thinking skills. But I I do think it could be better. And I do think that does seep out into a lot of the reporting. Um, I I know I'm not answering your question, but um, more that I do do have criticisms of the sort of place I come from. Um, Yeah. The reason I... I asked it was I, I recently saw a, a documentary where they're talking about a major media outlet. I think it was either CBS or NBC or one of these places. And a journalist there was working on a story uh, about Nike using sweatshops somewhere. And they killed the story because Nike was sponsoring the yeah. Olympics coming yeah. up. And all the reporters who were actually in the Olympics were wearing Nike jackets. And because of advertising interest, they killed the story. Yeah, that's crappy. And I can imagine that. Actually, um, I think a lot of the Me Too stuff, um, Ronan Farrow used to work at NBC. And um, he had pitched the sort of investigation he did for the New Yorker. And they they wouldn't take it on. And I, I think, again, it was there were a lot of contacts within the companies. Um, so that, that happens a lot. Um, yeah. I had something to say that was on this point. Yeah, it will come to me. <laughs> well, I think that uh, the fact that you brought up me too. Oh, oh yeah. But, but having said all that, um, again, just focusing on where you guys are, like probably every other day I watch Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, and that, I don't know, having said all this, that sort of level of contempt towards the media is really shocking. Um, I just find the way she talks to journalists to be, frankly repulsive um and that is dangerous because even though i've said all these things about about my profession um i do think what we do is really important and it can be done better of course but i think the very nature of what we do is extremely important to society so like having someone be it, i mean the whole administration but just because i watch her probably every other day doing this is it's really quite shocking in terms of just this hostility towards people wanting to seek out the truth, people wanting to investigate, wanting to engage in public discourse. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's not great at all. Yeah. 
Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's get into uh, the other big part of your work, which is, is what got my attention. Uh, so, work that you do at the mm-hmm. Gender Knot. Uh, so, I want to start this by by talking about uh, what you learned about gender dynamics from your own parents. Like, what did they teach you uh, about this? And, and you know, what did you disagree with? What do you agree with? And, and what has been the gen- what was the genesis for this idea of the gender? Dynamics? Yeah. So parents is interesting because um, my mother's very she's one of these very sort of powerful women who doesn't take crap. Um, and my dad has always encouraged me to be like that. Um, and in fact, I think he's always been in a good way, always very hard on me to not um, let the fact that I'm a woman hold me back. Um, so even from a very young age, I remember him sitting me down and being like, you know, you must, you will make sure that people take you seriously and that they don't dismiss you because you're a girl and that you're really smart and you will show people that they have to treat you well. So I think I've always been very aware of the fact that I was raised by two parents who are very feminist and very much into you're smart and women are smart and can do can do anything. Um, that's something I was always very aware of. Um, what was, wait, what else did you ask? There was a second half. Um, what was the, the genesis for the, the concept? Oh the yeah. Time? The genesis for this. Um, so I guess it's actually a bit of a long winded answer. The genesis for this, I think until a few years ago, I was kind of very masculine, um, in terms of just how I was. Um, and it's something I actually heard from a psychologist I once interviewed for something completely different. It was um, a piece about something not to do with gender at all. But I kind of mentioned this because she um, she works specifically with a lot of business people. And I kind of mentioned this. And she was saying she's Indian background, grew up in the UK. She was saying that this is a very, very common thing she sees in intelligent women who grew up, grow up in the West because a lot of being taken seriously as a girl when you're young and you're smart is to like not be quote unquote feminine. So to not be too soft, not be too emotional, um, to be just quite hardcore, to study hard subjects at school like I did and stuff. So it's a kind of real way of trying to prove yourself by being like quite masculine. So she was saying it's something that's super common in sort of intelligent women in the West that like they're very masculine until like mid to late twenties where either something happens or they're feeling unfulfilled and, you know, either like me, they end up in therapy or through some other means, they start sort of exploring their more feminine side. And it's kind of, it's a very exciting and rich period for them. Um, and it makes them feel a lot more whole, a lot more connected. And so basically it's a bit cliche, but that kind of happened for me. And it kind of made me see gender dynamics very differently um, I think I, I'd always been a massive feminist and I'd always read a lot of feminist literature and stuff, but there were a lot of things I didn't really relate to. Like maybe intellectually I got it, but maybe I didn't really empathize with. And I think it's only when I started exploring my feminine side that I could actually empathize with a lot of these power structures being unequal and a lot of the sort of implicit biases and the ways we talk to each other and the assumptions we have about men and women. Um, so that happened as well. Um Also, we're in an era where there's just so much talk about sort of gender roles, masculinity, femininity. And I think as someone who grew up being very masculine and had very masculine traits, um, but as a woman in society was treated like a girl and then, you know, discovering this feminine side, it was this interesting position of being able to relate to many different experiences um, and to see them play off amongst each other. So that's kind of the long the long version of it. In terms of doing the actual podcast, um, I'd been wanting to do a podcast for a while. Um, I've worked in radio for about a decade or so. 
and mostly in news, current affairs, business. And what I found really exciting when podcasts were coming about was that it's a very intimate medium. It's very uh, personal. People can really get, they can really go there in conversations. Um, and there's something very sort of open-ended and it really, the format really lends itself to discovery. So it's not like, you know, a Q&A where you just have to have the answers. But um, it's a really great format for trying to figure things out. And when it comes to when it comes to conversations about gender, I really wanted to do that via podcast because I think so many of the problems are to do with how we communicate. Um, you know, like the classic of men interrupt a lot or they speak over women. That that's like a classic cliche, but it does happen. So I think a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about gender is power dynamics, how we communicate, how we relate, and that's something that I think you can't really get across in a written piece. Um, and also, I don't really see that working in video either. There's, there's something about the intimacy and immediacy of podcasts that really brings this to light. And so I thought that this was like the right medium to sort of explore this topic of masculinity and femininity that I'd been really interested interested in and it was kind of pertinent in, in my life and that has been sort of bubbling up in society the past three or four years as well. So kind of a few things seem to line up quite nicely and seamlessly, which is, um, which is why I started the podcast. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What do you think that we should have learned either in school or when we were younger about gender dynamics that have negative impacts on us as adults? What should we have learned? Hmm. This is hard for me to answer because I went to a girls' school between 11 to 18. Um, So I was very much in that context. So... What were you taught about gender dynamics in that context? Yeah, so what's interesting, so 11 to 18, I was at a girls' school, a very sort of academic girls' school, and uh, one of the very sort of high-achieving ones in London. So just like my parents, it was always, um, we were always taught that we could do whatever we we wanted um, and that it was irrelevant that we were girls. Um, Also, the other thing about the school that I went to, my specific school, was that it had a reputation for also being a very nurturing school um, because there there were other very academic girls' schools nearby who had a bit of a tougher reputation. Um, Whereas my school, it was very much like, you know, if you want to express yourself, that's cool. If you want to do something hardcore and change the world, that's cool. It was very relaxed um, and there wasn't a lot of pressure on us in terms of you must do X, Y, Z. So looking back, I feel very lucky that I was at that school. Um, it's interesting when I went to university at 18. Um, yeah, just just realizing that men take up a lot of space and you pretty much immediately noticing this in classrooms. And at my girls' school, at, at my girls' school, I was one of the very sort of opinionated, talkative girls who always had something to say. I was a, a bit of a loud one, which you can probably tell. But going from that to university and suddenly feeling like I was one of the most quiet people in the room, um, that was very noticeable. Um, and, and even now I see it in the workplace and stuff. Just the fact that men take up a lot of space um, just in terms of how much they speak, how they speak over people, how forceful they are when they speak. And as a woman sort of like trying to 
navigate that. And that's a really obvious thing. And you even see this. I know that there's been a lot of jokes about this, but you know, people talk about man spreading or things like that. I know that in a way that sounds funny, but it is this manifestation of like men feeling entitled to space, you know? Um, and then you see that in interpersonal relationships, whether they're friendships or romantic relationships or families. Again, it's kind of very much like sort of the needs of men, you know, they're very much not being aware of how much space they're taking up, how much of people's time they're taking up, how much of people's energy they're taking up. Um, I think having gone from a girls' school to university, that was a very obvious thing suddenly, um, just just kind of that space that men do take up. Um, yeah. I don't think that answers what you, what you said though. No, it, it, it raises numerous other questions. Uh, what have you seen from the other side? Um, what perceptions about gender dynamics do you think men have about women? What are inaccurate? What are accurate? Like what are the, so, you know, you've brought up that women feel this. What have in your own work you discovered that men feel uh, about women? Oh, interesting. What do I think men think about women? I feel like I feel like men feel very attacked right now. Um, that's kind of the main thing I'm getting from a lot of men I speak to, feeling very attacked um, and not understanding that often women would prefer they engage. Um, th this happens a lot when sort of right now a lot of women socially are very pissed off so they're coming out and they're very sort of directly expressing how they feel and there's this real sense of a lot of men retreating and feeling like they always need to maybe please women um now i can only really speak to speak for myself and the women that i'm close to but i feel like i'm not really interested in a man pleasing me i'm more interested in him engaging um I'm, I'm more interested in, even if a guy disagrees with something I've said, I'm really upset with him staying present and trying to work through something with me. Um, and I think that's something that men really misunderstand. I think, and this is a bit of a cliche we have, but there's some truth to this, that men feel like they have to fix things. This cliche that a woman will talk, a woman will talk about a problem and a guy is like, what do you want me to do about it? Um, and it's a cliche, but I think there's a real truth to that. And yeah, I in my own experience, I, I personally have had very bad experiences with men who are people pleasers and who want to please women because that's actually, that isn't actually connection. Um, that kind of feels like quite an objectified relationship, you know, like you are being nice to me because you want something or you are trying to fix something because you want me to get off your back and not talk about something anymore, you know? Um, and I think the interest is more in connection and even having a fight. I mean, I'm a big fan of having a fight and especially again, speaking for myself, but I think this might be a bit more general than just me. Um, I, I really lose respect for a guy if he can't have an argument with me because I feel like that's a way of a people pleasing, b not being honest and c kind of treating me like I'm some fragile thing and that, oh, we can't really go there. Whereas if we get engaged and we argue, but still the guy is present, he wants to have the conversation. We might disagree, but he's up for grappling with it with me. That means a thousand times more. And I've had guests on the podcast. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to go into too much detail, but what, probably my favorite guest. No, my two favorite guests guests on the podcast have been guys who massively disagreed with me, and we had a bit of an argument. Um, and that was way more satisfying because it's like this guy 
first of all, he knows that I can handle the conversation and he's interested in going there. Um, and that's a lot more important mm-hmm. for me um, than someone being like, oh, yeah, I agree. Or like, you know, thinking how they can please me. So I think men really, um, not to generalize, but this is all generalizations. I think men really misunderstand that. But it's less that women want to be it's less that women want men to please them or to fix things more that they want men to engage and to be present. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I had a, a recently listened to a podcast. Uh, one of my friends who is also a former guest here on unmistakable creative was, was on a chat with Cheryl Strait about emotionally abusive relationships And I listened to the whole thing and I texted her back and I said, have you ever considered the possibility that men are in emotionally abusive relationships Mm -hmm. too? And she said, of course they are. She said, Mm -hmm. we should talk about that. Uh, Given that I'm getting to talk to you, uh, I figured I don't want to wait until I have to talk to her, which is going to be like two (laughs) months from now to ask about it. So I wonder what you have to say based on the fact that you've spent uh, all this time doing this project. Because when I listened to her describe what she called her emotionally abusive relationships, I felt like she was describing every relationship that I had been in. In terms of you had been on the receiving end of the abuse. Yeah. And can you describe a little bit what sort of things she was talking about? Well, I, I, literally every, I mean, a series of, you know, insults preceded by don't take this the wrong way, but, uh, you know, forcing you to spend money that you don't actually have, letting that become a major issue, a, a lot of different things. I mean, it, you know, we could talk for two hours about all that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to air my dirty laundry about my past relationships here, you know, mm-hmm. for my audience, but just listening to her talk about some of those things in which you're, Basically, what it came down to, I'll, I'll sum it up with one one simple phrase. It came down to a complete violation of boundaries and a lack yeah. of respect. And I think that we don't, for the most part, you don't see men talk about that because we never want to be seen as somebody. Yeah, no, that's different. interesting you say that. Um, I'm going to be a little bit shrinky <laughs> and take it back further. <laughs> um, yeah. I I think this whole thing of boys not really being able to express themselves, that's like the biggest violation of boundaries men ha- men receive and from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically a way of saying that your experience doesn't matter. I don't want to hear it. Um, which then later, I think that later leads to the fact that a lot of men get very offended when women are emotional because it's such a reminder of, you know, this thing of we judge in others, that which we judge in ourselves, it's sort of like, you know, they're not allowed to be like that. So it's very offensive if they see someone else being like that. When it comes to, um, when you're talking about emotionally abusive relationships, I'd probably take that to being going right back to childhood. And I, I'd think these expectations placed placed upon boys, that's sort of the first and probably the biggest way in which a lot of men um, experience emotional abuse. Um, and I, I think of like a lot of men in my life, past or present, um, and I often, I often look at them like, you know, they have emotional problems or they're very emotionally shut down or they just can't handle so many everyday things. And I, I often think, feel like they were probably made to feel like they were too much as kids, like any of their sort of expression, whether it was sadness, whether it was hurt, whether it was a lot of vitality and a lot of sort of, um, joy and stuff, whether they were made to feel that that was too much, you know, and kind of, I don't really want to hear it, get on with it. Um, I think that's kind of, yeah, I I feel like you see this a lot in men where you feel like, yeah, they were just probably told they were too much. And that's kind of like 
when you talk about a violation of boundaries, that's like the ultimate violation of boundaries. Don't express yourself. Don't be you. Don't be whole. Um, and that will come not just from parents, but from everyone in society. Um, I, yeah, I kind of see that quite clearly. But then I know that you're talking more about sort of interpersonal relationships in the present. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think the two are related. So yeah, it makes sense. And also, I mean, another thing I think that we don't talk about, and it's actually very difficult to talk about because it's so hard to point out. Um, often on the podcast, I am very critical of certain things men do, but I think um, there are certain things women do that are incredibly toxic that are very hard to call out. Um, actually, we're doing a recording on this on the gender not soon, but um, there's there's a lot of behaviours that women are taught to do that seem on the surface to be very wonderful and caring, but actually very manipulative. So I think a lot of sort of being overly caring, mothering other people, trying to sort out people's problems for them. Um, on the surface, these behaviors seem like, oh, she's such a caring person. But so many people, especially so many women I know who behave this way, is actually out of manipulation and control. And, you know, it's how they get what they want out of people rather than because they're actually trying to be kind or helpful. Now, I know that a lot of women are raised this way, so maybe it's not their fault. At the same time, we criticize a lot of things men do, which isn't necessarily their fault. So I, I don't think that that's a good excuse when women are like, yeah, but we're raised to like, you know, be nice to people and to cater to them and stuff. I'm like, yeah, but we we can't make excuses for ourselves. I mean, I'll give one example. I don't want to say too much. It's really hard actually doing, doing the gender not because often I end up talking about things in a really abstract, vague way. And that's because I don't really want to implicate people <laughs> who I might know or who I might have known and stuff. But then things sound abstract. But I'll try to give a bit of an abstract example. Um, like a couple of years ago, I was in a bad situation and a woman I knew who is likes to be helpful and caretakey. Um, I told her how she could help me and she did none of those things, but did things that made her look very mastery. And that made me very angry. And that's something that actually isn't very rare as well. And I, I see that as a, as a real form of toxic femininity, like trying to caretake in a way that makes you look good rather than does the person on the receiving end are they benefiting from it? Have they actually asked for this kind of help? And um, that's a real boundary violation as well, because often it's like trying to help in a way that is invading your boundaries or is disrespectful or isn't what you want or is more hurtful and triggering to you. But on the surface, it's like, oh, she's such a caring person. Um, I think a lot of women do this. Um, and I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but it is a real manipulative thing. And you, you see this a lot in, um, romantic relationships as well where I think I don't know if it's because not to be cliche but maybe it's because like men are often a bit louder and more direct that when they're nasty it's just more obvious whereas kind of I think a lot of the nastiness I've seen from women in sort of romantic relationships is quite hard to call out because on the surface oh it looks so lovely but it's actually not <laughs> is that really heavy your wow uh, makes me think <laughs> Yeah, no, no. This is it's stuff that just makes you think. It's making my brain hurt in a good way. But uh, so you know, we've alluded mm -hmm. to to growing up uh, a handful of times throughout this conversation. What I wonder, especially for parents who are listening to this, what would you tell them uh, that they should be teaching their children about gender dynamics from both sides, from 
yeah, both the male yeah, and the so female. Yeah, so right now, so right now, I'm actually making a documentary for the BBC, looking at um, fathers and sons, and also one about mothers and sons. So I actually, I spent this morning interviewing several sets of fathers about their sons, and that was really interesting because you're saying sort of like the new dad, so to speak, being really interested in communicating with their sons and listening to their sons, uh, being interested in their son's experience. So, you know, everything I was saying earlier about like, you know, boys not being allowed to express themselves and that basically being a way of telling someone that your experience doesn't matter. It's really fascinating seeing these dads being very aware of that. Um, and that's been really impressive. Um, the other thing I think is that we're in an age where like, women are talking a lot about empowerment and also about the ways in which sort of the positive sides of the way women do things is sort of ignored often, especially in the workplace. And all of that is great and everything. But I, I do feel like um, there is there is always balance, right? So it's not just that whatever mothers say is good is the right thing. Um, in fact, I was talking to a psychologist yesterday for these documentaries who was saying something similar that like now we're in an era where um, we just completely dismiss masculine things that dads do and automatically think that they're bad. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of that stuff is positive too. But to be honest, I don't have children and I feel like it's easy to theoretically talk about things. So I don't really want to say too much. Yeah. Um, a few of my friends have kids yeah. and it, it is really, it is really great seeing how both the mother and the father, they're both really aware of all these dynamics. And I think that's a really great thing. Um, but as someone who doesn't have kids and also I didn't have siblings growing up, um, I feel like I'm in no place <laughs> to give any suggestions to anyone. Um, but, but I think if, yeah. if parents are engaged in thinking about things and discussing things, that's great. Cause that will trickle down to them making whatever decision they think is best for, for their kids. And also given the personality of their kids. Um, so may, maybe, I don't. I can't remember if you asked for advice or suggestions, but if I had, no, no I mean, I, I think you. you well, did, the suggestion you would the be question. to for the parents to get involved in the discussions themselves, and that will trickle down to however they raise kids. Well, I, I have two sort of final questions for you around this. Um, what role does media and popular culture play in? our messages about gender dynamics. And I'll, I'll supplement that with something else. Uh, we had a guest here, uh, a guy named Brett McKay, who runs a website mm -hmm. called The Art of mm -hmm. Manliness. And one of the things he told me was that what he was hoping to do with The Art of Manliness was redefine masculinity uh, because of the fact that he said, you know, from popular culture, the message is masculinity is Maxim Magazine, Hugh Hefner, Playboy, um, you know, scantily clad women, you know, this kind of stuff. And he really wanted to get back to a, a sort of classical definition of masculinity, kind mm -hmm. of like his grandfather, you know, learning how to shave. And uh, he and, and probably my favorite part of that conversation, he said, you know, in his mind, the epitome of masculinity was, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Friday Night Lights, but the football coach on Friday Night Lights, Coach Taylor, he said, that is the definition we should be after. He's like, because that would be the guy that I would want to be my coach. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of father I would want to be. And I, I wonder, you know, as a journalist, as somebody who creates media, what impact does media and popular culture have on the messages that we're I seeing? think pop culture is hugely important 
in terms of everything and we really, really dismiss it um, in society. Um, I think it has a huge role. Um, I think what's very exciting right now is that there's a lot of space for diversity um, in terms of not, I don't just mean sort of racial diversity or gender diversity, but in terms of people having a space more than ever before to kind of show something that's different from the norm. Um, so I think now is quite an exciting time in those in in that regards. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think media and pop culture has a huge impact. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where to go with that though. The reason this is on my mind is I'm working on an outline for a third book. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm looking at, gender dynamics being one of them, basically relationship with self, relationship to others and relationship to money are the three topics that I'm, I'm really looking at closely. And the one thing I'm realizing is that our social programming that comes from media and pop culture has a huge impact on what we think about those things. Even if, and in a lot of cases, they are not deliberate choices. They're choices that have been yeah. shaped by yeah. other people for us yeah. based on Actually, their Actually, this, this, now I'm slightly going to go back to what I was saying earlier with journalism being quite an elite profession. Um, I think I'd wager also a lot of pop culture and stuff. Um, you're, you're having a very specific type of person kind of create or decide what is good or what should go out. Um, and that 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 in itself is quite problematic because again you're not getting a range of viewpoints or ways to be, um, and I don't even think this is sometimes done on purpose. Like people sit around and say, "I think men should be X." I wonder if it's just because it's like five guys who are all similar sitting in a room together writing a sitcom, you know. So that that's why those things happen, um, which is when um, not just in media and pop culture, but, you know, generally there's a lot of discussions about diversity in the workplace. You hear this a lot in the world of business and the world of technology where, you know, people say that if you if you want to create products that everyone can use, you need to have diverse people actually creating them. So you can't have just, you know, six white guys making a product. I, I really think that's that's the same when it comes to pop culture and with media. Um, I. I don't know how much of maybe I'm being too nice because I was going to say I don't know how much of it is people deliberately trying to put across certain messages, um, but yeah, I, I think you need more different voices in sort of the drawing board. Well, it's funny you say that because I remember when we finished the manuscript for uh, my previous book, uh, despite the fact that my editor and uh, my, my agent and the writing coach that I worked with and my editor mm -hmm. at Penguin were all women. And I remember when we got the first round of comments back, there was a section and she said, Srini, she said, do you realize that like every example you've given to support this point is mm. nothing but white men? And we all kind of looked at it like <laughs> Indian guy and two women end up missing something yeah, because so Because white men are the obvious. default, right? So that's that's why you don't notice them. You don't <laughs> notice that you've, you think you've interviewed five people. Whereas if, I don't know, you interviewed to, yeah. I don't know, gay Latino people, you'd probably remember that fact about them, right? So maybe, yeah. maybe that's why. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really, really interesting. I can see why Sarah referred you as a guest. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You kind of just know, don't you? I hate I'm going to say authenticity. That's why I paused for ages because I was like, I don't know if I actually want to say that. But you can tell if 
what someone is doing is true and is from their heart and is, you know, you can just tell that if someone's being genuine. And I think that's what I was saying earlier about how I think it's hard to, for example, sit down and make a list of what you want your life to be like. A lot of it is more intuitive and stuff. I think you do see that in people's output, especially their creative output, but you know, whatever they like put a lot of their passion into and whatever their legacy is. Um, I think it's those who are really authentic and it comes from a real place. You can tell that. That sounds really cliche, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's true. Fine. Sometimes the most cliche uh, comments are well, the ones you want to make and you're like, oh no. <laughs> that's all they really cliche. Yeah. I <laughs> but I will say one other thing that. though. Well, I do think I, um I yeah, do think please. there's a lot to be said about learning things properly and doing them the hard way, especially if you're someone who wants to do something different or experimental. Um, and I'm thinking in so many fields, people who've been real boundary pushers have often had a very sort of classical education in a way. Um, and a great example is someone like Bjork, who I, I know in the sort of 90s, she was seen as like the real boundary pusher in music. And she like studied classical. She she went to like a conservatory when she was a kid. So when, whenever I hear sort of actual musicians talk about her work, you could tell that they liked it because she knew what she was doing. Hence, she knew how to break ba- break boundaries. Um, talking as a podcaster, I see this as a lot as well. I think a lot of my favorite podcasts and a lot of the, a lot of them that do really well are by people who maybe they were a boring radio journalist for many years, and because they learn the boring but sort of very proper way of doing something that's why when they experiment it's really good because they've got a very solid foundation you see this in all sorts of fields i think um i think learning something the boring hard way for several years and then doing something outside the box you you can do something really good whereas i think people who are very experimental right from the start often it's a bit of a mess they don't really know what they're doing or they don't do it as well um so I think the other thing that can make someone unmistakable is to like learn something really well and properly and then to go and smash it. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Well, I think that makes a, a really fitting end to a really, really insightful and thought provoking conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your um, work and everything? Where can they find to? out more? So the gender not, we are at the Um, my work is a bit all over the place. So I guess if you follow me on Twitter, um yeah that's kind of where i slowly collate your things so everything else will end up there awesome and for everybody listening we'll wrap the show with that thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast while you were listening were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring instructive maybe even heartwarming Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.